Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest is uh, Jay Alexander Bay, and I found him because I saw an article online uh, where it talks about gamers building a digital museum that unlocks secrets of the brain. So uh, Alex has been gracious enough to come on the podcast, so thanks for coming, Alex. How are you doing? Good. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, tell me a little bit about your background, and then I want to ask you about this uh, this article. All right. Uh, so my name is Alex Bay, and I am currently a graduate student in Princeton University in electrical engineering department and neuroscience. So I come from an engineering background, but I work on the field of neuroscience. So it's called the field of computational neuroscience. So what uh, what led to this article? What are you working on in particular right now that uh, that was so interesting that led to the creation of the article? Oh, so our lab, uh, Sebastian Stang Lab at Princeton University, is a lab working on reconstructing the cells, the brain neurons. So what we do is we start from electron microscopy images, then we use artificial intelligence to detect the cell boundaries in the EM electron microscopy images, then we color the cells inside, and we reconstruct every single cell within our uh, volume of data set. And after reconstructing these cells, we look, look at the morphology and we look how the cells are connected in order to discover some novel neuroscience findings. And this paper is along with that research direction. So how much of the brain have you been able to reconstruct? A, a small portion, a, a section, the whole thing? You know, in humans, what kind of creature? All right. Uh, so that, that's a very good question. So it's only a small portion of the brain, and it's not the human brain, but we're working with mouse brain. Because that's due to the technical uh, limitation right now. So it takes a lot of computational effort and cost to reconstruct a small volume of data set. And if we do this in a human data set, it's not gonna be worth anything because the volume we're dealing with is only like several hundred micrometers in uh, three directions. So that's why we're working with uh, mouse brains usually because mouse brains share uh, some similarity with human brains also, but that several hundred micrometer cube data is, is quite meaningful data set in mouse because it's it's a relatively larger proportion of brain. Right, right, makes sense. What per, yeah, so the area you're working with, what percentage of the mouse's brain is it? So our previous publication is actually not it's actually not a brain data set, it's a retina data set. So it it's basically mouse's oh. eyeball. So but but what's important is retina is also part of the brain because it's part of the central nervous system and, and it's where the visual information comes in first. And what's very interesting about this retina part is that many people think uh, information is being processed only in the brain, but retina also does computation too, which means retina also has a circuit and it also processes visual information. It's not only like perceiving the information, but it actually computes the information. Why do you think that happens? Is it computationally more efficient to have distributed computing in the body? Or are there Uh, other reasons? Well, we actually don't know. That's really interesting. 
Yeah, we actually don't know uh, about the rationale why it computes from a retina itself, but I guess brain is developed uh, in a manner to have an efficient computation. So if in the initial pro if the initial processing of visual information can be done in a retina, it could be more efficient in the later part of the uh, process. Maybe that's that's the hypothesis, but nobody actually knows why why it's being computed in the retina too. Well, I guess there'll be less latency because it still has to transmit from there to the brain and back. So maybe it makes that sense to true. do certain computations there. Yeah, I don't know. That's true. That oh. could be true. Well, this is a side question. Have you? Uh, do you know of um, other instances of local computation in the body in addition to the retina? Uh, I I presume no, but I I personally don't have any much information on the other parts of the body, but. The the reason why uh, retina is considered as a brain is a uh, retina is part of the central nervous system, but all the other parts of body, like for finger or other parts of body, that's those are peripheral nervous systems. So it's a little different. Gotcha. So they yeah, they were mainly performing as uh, the receiver of the inputs, but not as the uh, processor. Well, the idea just occurred to me. Hmm. I wonder if there's any other parts of the body that do the same thing. Because that would be like super fascinating, you know. So I, I would say no. Because they're all part of peripheral nervous system. So. Gotcha. Okay, very good. All right. Um, so you're modeling the mouse brain. Uh, oh, sorry, the mouse retina. I apologize. Have yep. you been able to model the entire retina or just part of it? Uh, so it, it is still. So mouse retina is very small, but it's still very big. Uh, com, uh, considering our technical limitations. So the region, wow. the region or part of the retina we have been looking at are the cells called retinal ganglion cells. So retinal ganglion cell is important, in fact, because they are the only output neurons in the retina. So they are the cells that are actually connected to the brain. So they are the cells that are actually sending out the visual information to the directly to the brain. And okay. also, what's what's important about these retinal ganglion cells are that that the retinal ganglion cells are composed of several types, actually like about 40 to 50 types that are known. But what's interesting about these types are this, each type of retinal ganglion cells are known to compute distinct visual features. So, for example, if the stimulus, if, if some object is moving in a certain direction, there, there is a type that only detects the, uh, the object moving in that direction. On the other hand, there could be a different type which only detects the object moving in the opposite direction. So, different types... Oh, or maybe just like horizontal way. movements. Is it right, right. To like horizontal versus vertical or left versus right or both? Or? Uh, there, there are actually like all four directions. Uh, we call them the direction selective types, oh. and there are so there are basically like forty or fifty types uh, detecting different things. And if you merge all those forty or fifty channels together, that's that's the actual perception your uh, humans or mouse or animals are receiving. How discreetly is it broken down? Is there are there neurons just uh, for like left left movements or fast or slow or up or down or well, there are like several types we know for sure, like what uh, what their role is. But for many of the types, we don't really know what it actually performs. The only fact we know is that they compute a different visual feature. And if you combine those, all if you combine all those channels together, that that's that's how you end up like understanding what you see. But we don't actually know sure. what each type actually computes. The uh, answer to your question would be, we don't really know how detail it gets down to and at what at what level it gets down to. Wow. When you say that even the retina of a mouse is super complicated, 
is that a combination of the number of types of cells and the number of cells and how they're connected? Like, can, can you give me a sense of how complicated it is, how many connections, how many possibilities? I, I don't have the number on top of my head, but I, I could tell you that there are uh, for the mouse retina, which is a lot smaller than human retina, there are still hundreds of thousands of retinal ganglion cells. I'm, I'm, I'm only talking about ganglion cells here. Uh, there are cells called bipolar cells. There are photoreceptors. If you include all those together, it's going to be uh, millions of it. But the, these retinal ganglion cells can be reduced down to, uh, I think it's about 40 to 50 types. That's, that's kind of the convergence with other researches, uh, other functional classification or genetic classification. They, uh, researchers in the field think there are about like 40 to 50 types of retinal ganglion cells. So that reduces down a lot. But still, that's, that's still quite complex, like 50 types. If you include connections to the bipolar cell, which is a step behind the ganglion cells, and all those together, it's, it's, it's a still complicated system. But what I can tell you is that this circuit, the retinal circuit, is a lot simpler than the brain circuit. With this kind of directed to, there are still a long way to go in neuroscience. Because even it's retinal circuit, even if it's simpler, we still don't have much idea on like how it actually works. So right. in order to figure out the brain, it's going to take much more effort, and who knows when it will happen. Huh. What, are you, um, what are you hoping to learn from this initial analysis you're doing? Uh, for this analysis, so, so the main novel finding is that we have found some new types uh, in the retinal ganglion cell. So the reason why it's important to identify the types are basically your uh, previous question. Uh, since if you if you want to study cell by cell, it's too complicated. So we have to reduce down the complexity into a certain level, and that's what this type classification can do. And we have reduced reduced it down to about 40 to 50. Uh, we call it clusters because some of the clusters haven't been validated as types, but they are also the candidates of types. So I would say like 40 to 50 types for now. So by identifying the types, we are able to identify what parts consist the retina, and this is a great part of a uh, great starting point to understand the retinal circuit and how it actually works. And also the other findings okay. we have done in this research is also we have found some structural and functional principles in the layer called inner plexiform layer, and these layers are where, where these ganglion cell dendrites live in. So yeah, so those kind of things can be a starting point uh, to identify how the retina is structured and this could lead to understand like how the retinal circuit actually works to process visual information. Gotcha. Okay. And so, what was the help that you got in uh, in understanding the network? You know, you you pulled in help. What did you do? Like, talk to me about that process of how you got to this point, even. Oh, so you you mean how how we got this data set? How you were able to process the data set because there's so much to look at. Oh, so much to look at. Uh, actually, I, I like to go a little back and I, I would like to uh, talk a little more on how we got the data set first then I'll move on to like sure. what did we do with the data set okay. so so uh, let, let's go back so right now artificial intelligence uh, does a quite good job detecting the cells but like back then when we were trying to reconstruct this data set the artificial intelligence didn't really do a a good job because of like some technical limitation and we didn't have as good hardware as we have right now. So what we did is, so artificial intelligence could generate this small pieces of cells, what we call the super voxels. 
but he wasn't able to merge it together like properly because of the technical difficulties we have back then. The algorithm wasn't good enough and we didn't have as good hardware as right now. So that's why we came up with a, our lab came up with a game called iWire, which launched in 2012. And that's where the gamers came in to take a part of our research. So what gamers did is artificial intelligence generated the small pieces. And since the machine can connect those pieces together, so we brought in the gamers to actually connect those pieces like puzzles. So the, what the game does is, so <clears throat> gamers is basically doing a 3D puzzle. So they're trying to connect these uh, small pieces together to complete a single cell. And as a result, for this research, for our data set, we, we were able to uh, bring in help from about 30,000 gamers, which is a lot of people. Okay. And that's why, that's why it actually became possible uh, to reconstruct this huge data set. And as a result, we were able to reconstruct about 400 uh, cells for our research, 400 retinal ganglion cells. And the total reconstruction path length of the dendrites are 1.524 meters. That's, that's a huge reconstruction. <laughs> yeah, that is. Huh. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that's how the data set came in. And if we didn't have the gamers, we didn't have the eyewaters, this would not have been possible at that level. So we okay. greatly thank our citizen scientists working on this. Gotcha. So are you done an analyzing the data or is this just your first step and you want to use the same method and flow to, to grab a lot more data and analyze it? What's your, oh, so, where are you at with the process now? Uh, so the, so the, so that's how the data set came in and the result, main result of the paper is how we analyze the data. So we actually analyzed the reconstruction. So in this data set, this data set comes from 2009. But the limitation of this data set is hard to, it's hard to identify the context. It's hard to identify the connectivity because we don't have any synapses in this data set. So since we have the 3D reconstruction, it's, it's easy to identify where it contacts, but contacting doesn't really mean it's connected. In order, to, in, in order for the cells to be connected, it, it needs to have a synapse in between. But for this data set, we stained it in a little different way to reconstruct, it, uh, to reconstruct the cells easily. So we don't have any synapse data. So we want a, uh, so that's actually our greatest limitation of this data set. So we weren't able to study any connectivity of the cells, but instead we were able to look at the detailed morphology and we also have some functional recordings. So, and so we were able to connect those two properties to find some novel neuroscience findings. Am I being okay. here? What's, what's the path from here you know, directly? Are you gonna, do you want to analyze the entire retinal structure of the mouse, or is it enough oh, so looking you, at the ganglion you mean the, cells? You mean the, so you mean the future project? Well, even the existing project, you know, do you have enough data to, to, to continue to mine it for more insights, or do you need more data? And what's your end goal with this data? Do you want to completely understand and be able to replicate and test the functioning of the ganglion portion of the mouse's retina, or what do you want to do? So for this data set, we're pretty much done with it uh, because... So we're actually gathering a new data set. As I said, the great limitation of this data set is that we don't have any synapses. So we, we, we wouldn't be able to study any connectivity analysis in accurate way. So we're actually gathering a new retina data set in our lab, which actually has all the synapses. And it's a larger data set. So we, we're, we're able to reconstruct, uh, look at the cells, uh, not only the retinal ganglion cells, but in the cells in a different layer too. So if we gather the data set, we would be able to actually study how the cells are connected. And also we'll be able to look at the 
different types, uh, different classes of cells in the retina too, and how they are connected. So we will be able to be one step more closer to identifying how the retinal circuit is structured and how it how it actually processes the information. Well, what's your feeling so far and what you've seen? How uh, intelligent or how sophisticated is the processing of just this one part of the retina? Uh, we're still in the beginning stage, I think. <laughs> there there are a lot a lot of things unknown, and there are a lot to figure it out. And anything we see is novel. So, all right. So what's yeah. what's on the um, the roadmap here for the um, you know for the next six months or a year? What what are you going to be doing over that time period? So our lab is actually so so as I said, uh, our lab is a lab trying to reconstruct uh, reconstruct all the cells in 3D, right? So mm-hmm. our lab not only works on the retina. But right now, our last primary goal is to reconstruct a part of primary visual cortex, which is the, basically the next step from the retina. So, oh, okay. So, yeah, you, our last do you, wanna, work. do you have to first understand the entire retina, and then you'll look at the whole visual cortex in the brain, or do you want to just no, 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 no it doesn't work like it that. It doesn't brain. work like that. So, it, it's hard to like, it's hard to accomplish like a final goal. It, it's like going in parallel. So it's not like we're gonna we're gonna be able to identify how the retina works in like soon future. That's that's still gonna take like hundreds of years. Okay. So we so in neuroscience we're or well, in our lab we're actually looking at like different data sets in a in and we're and we're trying to identify like one thing and like one step at a time. Okay. So for this research we found this uh one step in the retina for this data set and now. And that's it for this data set. And now we're trying to look at the primary visual cortex, and we're trying to find some like another thing that's interesting. And that's that's still an important step. So we're not able to figure out like how the retina works. So that 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 would be our final goal in the general neuroscience field. But that it's it's just too hard. <laughs> so we're just trying okay. to identify one thing at a time. Right, so our next okay. step is yeah. So our next step is actually not particularly based on the data set itself, but our lab's goal is to generate a pipeline so we, we don't need help from a gamers, but instead the machine can actually do it in an automated way to reconstruct a uh, reasonable reconstruction of 3D cells. Hmm. So for this time, we got a help from a gamers, as I said. We, we needed 30,000 gamers help to reconstruct the cells, right? right? But right now, our lab worked hard and uh, there were, there has been some hardware advances. So right now, it's a totally different story now. Artificial intelligence can do a pretty good job, so we can actually reconstruct the cells in, in a semi-automated manner. So right now, artificial intelligence is doing a pretty good job. So if we give a electron microscopy images as an input, and it can create a reasonable, accurate, uh, reasonably accurate uh, 3D reconstruction of cells. So that that's the current status, and we're trying to uh, develop a bit more so we can gather more accurate uh, reconstructions as possible because that's really important to do the science out of it. Gotcha. And and we are testing this pipeline on mainly the main data set we're working on right now is the primary visual cortex, and that's the step after the retina. And after we've done the uh, after we get the reconstruction, what we're trying to do is because Nobody has looked at this level of connectivity in the primary visual cortex. So 
once we get the data out of it, we're trying to uh, get some novel neuroscience finding out of it. It might be very trivial finding, but it can be an important step in, uh, in the general field of neuroscience, because it's very novel data set. Uh, one, one last question or so. Um, how did you incentivize the gamers to help you? And how did you uh, find them? How did, you, how did we find the gamers? Yeah, and how did you incentivize them to help you? Uh, so in sure. 2012, we launched a game called iWire. It, it's basically just like a regular game. They have points and they have scores. So if, if, you are, if you're good on the game, you can get in the high on the ranking board. The good thing about this game is that it's also educational too. So we actually reached, uh, reached out to some uh, like high school students or like younger than high school students too. Like, so we reached out to students and they were also willing to play because it's, it's not only a game that, actually, that is actually fun to play, but it's also educational at the same time. So, you know, like it, it doesn't really feel like a waste of, game, a waste of time. So right. as a result, we were able to get uh, quite a lot of players who are like kind of incentivized by that. And also the general audience was willing to play because they felt like it's contributing to science also. And every paper we publish out of this data set, we always uh, include eyewires in the end of the author list. So they're actually contributing to science and they're actually being part of our research too. So yeah, I guess great. it kind of incentivized in collecting the gamers. Well, very good. Alex, so what's the best way for uh, people to get in touch with you to learn more or maybe participate with you or collaborate in some way? I, I guess email would be the best. Uh, yeah, email. Uh, my email is alexbay93 at gmail.com. And yeah, if you, send, if you have any questions, I'll be willing to answer. Okay. Alex, I forgot to ask you about the Digital Museum. Tell me a little bit about that. What's that about? So this Digital Museum is actually uh, the most interesting part, I will say. It, it's actually my personal personal favorite part. So after having this retinal ganglion cells reconstructed, we've created a digital museum so everyone, every public uh, people can actually access it online. So if you type in museum.iwire.org, you can actually go into your uh, browser and actually look into our uh, reconstructed cells itself. So the novelty of this museum is that not only we have the 3D reconstruction of the cells, we also have both anatomy and physiological property of individual cells at the same time. So if you pull out a right collapsible sidebar, you can look at the anatomical property and uh, functional property of individual cells that are being displayed on the left panel uh, at the same time. And there haven't been any brain atlases that could do this. And also you can view subset of cells at the same time in any, uh, any combination you want, you want it to be. So that's, that's basically the novelty of the museum. So for general people, for general audience, it's very pleasing to view because from a textbook, they, they only view a cartoon of cells, which is not really how the, brain, uh, how the neurons look like. So if they go into the museum, they can actually look how the real neurons look like. Of course, it's not as colorful as it appears on the museum, but they can, act, uh, they can actually look at the shape of it. And for researchers, it's also a great resource uh, as well. So this museum can also help other researchers to uh, conduct, their re uh, conduct, uh, conduct their researches. So in order to demonstrate the utility of the museum, uh, we actually uh, show some novel neuroscience findings we got from the museum itself. 
and that's actually written yep. on the page. Oh, very cool. And so you'll provide a link for how people can go to the museum as well. I know you just spoke it, but we'll provide that in the show notes too. Uh, yep, it's museum. Yeah, it's museum.iwire.org. Uh, yep, and anyone, anyone in the world can access it. Is iwire spelled with the letter I or is it E Y E? Oh, it's E Y E W I R E. Dot org. Great. So yeah. Well, that's great. Well, uh, Alex, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.